like the eunuch was. And yet, like the eunuch, Christ will open Saul's eyes to the truth of the gospel. So we're going to divide our passage up into three sections. We're going to look at Saul before the light, Saul during the light, and Saul after the light. But before we dig into our passage, I wanted to remind us of our introduction to Saul back in Acts 7. So I think it would add to our understanding uh, to go back and reread that passage. So I wanted to reread that. So you guys head back there with me. Acts 7. We're going to look at just quickly verse uh, 54 and then on into the first part of 8. So it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he being Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Eight. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered and throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So some words in here that I want to pull out. I want you to see them just because as we're reading, sometimes we run past them. But I want you to get a feel for what was going on in this Saul and the atmosphere that was around uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So some words to remember. They were enraged. I want you to think about the strength of that word. They ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. You ever been so mad at somebody that you did that? You just grit your teeth like, for me most of the time it's so I won't say something I shouldn't. doesn't always help, but it does happen, right? Ground their teeth at him. They cried out with a loud voice. They were, in today's vernacular, they were shouting him down. Uh, they stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city. You see this mob mentality? They stoned him. And then in 8, Saul approved of his execution. Two things here. One, Saul approved of it. Two, Stephen was executed. They deemed themselves judge, jury, and executioners right here. And then a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. So you can see that this fear has spread through the uh, city of those that, are, uh, that believe the same way Stephen did. And they were scattered because of this fear. And Saul was ravaging the church. So in our passage today, it begins with a reference to this atmosphere. So we, as we read that, keep that in mind as we, as we step into Acts 9. And we're going to try to get down through 19 today. So Acts 9, and we'll start off here with verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So you see in this first passage that still breathing threats of murder, Saul's zealousness has not diminished in the least. He was continuing this relentless pursuit of the church. In later years, Paul described himself, uh, and Carlton read this this morning. I thought he was going to get my whole sermon He was as he started down this road. He read this. He said, later years, Paul said, he was exceedingly mad against them. He was a blasphemer denouncing Christ. He was a persecutor and violent. This was Paul talking about Saul, talking about who he was. He called himself violent against those. When you put this together, what we read six with Acts 7 and 8, you get the picture that this Saul guy is not the one you want to be after you. He's not the guy you want chasing after you. So who is he after? It says he's after the disciples of the Lord and the way, those that are of the way. In John 14, 6, this is very familiar. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The people that he's after, these are those who believe in Christ. That's who Saul's chasing to get. So what does he do? He goes to get letters from the high priest. As we said in uh, Acts 7 and 8, some of the believers had fled Jerusalem and were outside of the city, and Saul wanted authority to go get them and bring them back. He's not satisfied with just to eradicate this way in Jerusalem. He wants to reach outside of Jerusalem to go where these people might have gone to and bring them back. What we read in Acts 8, 3 is a great summary. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is what Saul is about. If he found you and you were of the way, he bound you and drug you off and took you back and committed you to prison. Uh, this word ravaging here, a little bit more about that word. This is the picture of a wild boar rampaging through a garden. If you guys have ever seen wild hog damage, it's devastating. They wipe out all the vegetation. It also could be used to describe an army devastating a city. Both examples are pictures of utter destruction. This is what Saul was doing to the church, and now he wanted to expand that 150 miles out. Uh, Damascus is about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So Luke said Paul's not just threatening Christians, but he was breathing threats. Get this picture. It was as though persecution was the very air that he breathed. It's not a minor or peripheral thing in Paul's life, in Saul's life. It's what he's doing. It's what he lives, eats, and breathes. It's stopping this way. So we know he was a Pharisee, but how did he get to this point? So a little bit of background. Saul was a son of a Pharisee. From his youth, he was known among all the Jews that according to the strictest party of the Jews, he lived as a Pharisee. He himself calls himself a Pharisee among Pharisees, the best of the best at what he did. Saul sat under the teaching of Gamaliel, one of the most prominent teachers of the day. This would include years of memorizing the Old Testament, years of intense questions and answers back and forth, years of debating and arguing about the Old Testament. He would become an expert in the Old Testament and an expert in the religion, an expert in what he believed. Paul was not open or interested in any other understanding of Scripture. He was utterly closed, utterly convinced that Christianity was absolutely untrue. He was not by any stretch spiritually sensitive. Not only was Christianity untrue, 
But if you believed it, you deserve prison as a minimum and death, possibly. Christianity with this message of salvation by faith apart from works was in direct opposition of what Saul knew and believed. I want to say that again. It's real important for you to understand where Saul was going. The message of salvation by faith apart from works was in direct opposition of what Saul knew and what Saul believed. If correct, it would turn Saul's religion, his achievements, totally on its head. It would be an absolute pile of rubbish what he had believed to this point. So Paul himself said in Acts 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only shut up many of the saints in prison by authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Don't miss his hand in that. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is Saul. This is the man on the road to Damascus before he's exposed to the light. So let's read about Saul's interaction with Christ. Let's read about Saul when he's exposed to the light. So picking up back up in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul's exposed to the light. He's approaching Damascus. And all of a sudden, this, the, our passage says, this light from heaven appears. So anybody ever had a flashlight, took it outside, and shined it when the sun was out? Y'all get that picture? It's kind of dim. You might not even see it, right? Sometimes it's even, even hard to know that your flashlight's working. But this light from heaven was not just any light. In Acts 22, it tells us it was midday and that the light was brighter than the noonday sun. So imagine a light shines around you and does to the sun what your sun does to the flashlight. This was not an ordinary light. This was a great light. There's no mistake about it. This light is supernatural. So you get an idea of why these men would stand speechless. What's the normal reaction to something supernatural? You see it all throughout Scripture. When man is confronted with a supernatural being, he assumes a position of submission and inferiority. And that's exactly what happens here. They were falling to the ground. Acts 22 tells us that both Saul and all the men with him fell to the ground in reaction to this light. There was also a voice that accompanied the light. This voice, too, was supernatural. Although the men heard the voice, they heard a noise, they could not understand what was being said. The men heard the voice and understood no one. The men saw the light and saw no one. Only Saul could understand the voice. 
The voice Saul heard was Christ. The person Saul saw was Christ. I bring this out because this is very important and fundamental to Saul's apostleship. These two facts, him seeing Christ and hearing Christ, are why Saul is truly apostle. He saw Christ in person. So what does Christ ask him? He says, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting that he asked this question because actually Saul had not done anything to Christ, if you think about it, to Christ personally. Christ says the persecution of his people is as a persecution of Christ. These are really strong words about who we are when we're in Christ. Hold on to those words. There's an inseparable union that exists between Christ and his followers. If you are in Christ today and things are done to you, it's as if they are done to Christ. You are that close to him. So now Christ has Saul's attention. What was Saul's response? Who are you? Uh, so often when Christ speaks, he says so much with so few words. Have you ever noticed that? So little, so little words, so much content. And he says, I am Jesus. The voice says, my name is Jesus. Think about what that means to Saul. Saul discovered to his surprise that Jesus of Nazareth is actually alive. Think of the impact this fact would have for Saul. If Jesus is alive, then he would have to have risen from the dead. If he had risen from the dead, then he must have been from God. If he was from God, then his message and his personhood must have been true. He must be the Messiah. If his message was true, Saul would have to heed his message. A living Christ would have meant that Saul had it wrong and had to change his mind about Jesus and his message. He had to repent. I want you to think of what a difficult thing this is for a Pharisee among Pharisees. The best of the best. Saul, Saul thought he had been serving God, but he had to come to grips with the fact that he had actually been persecuting the Messiah. I want you to think back a minute to Stephen. I want you to think about the comparison of what's going on here with what happened with Stephen. What a glorious sequel to what has just happened just a few chapters back in Acts. Stephen saw heaven open, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Saul was standing by when Stephen was actually seeing the glorified Christ. But Saul did not see Christ then. Here, Saul himself sees the glorified Christ. The heavens are opened up once again, and this murderous man named Saul is gazing into the blazing glory of the same person that Stephen saw. Radically different men, same glorious Christ. Now it's over, and Saul stands up. His eyes are opened, but he can't see. A little irony here. He's blind and must be led by the hand the rest of the way into Damascus. His spiritual eyes have been opened, but his physical eyes are closed. Prior to today, the very opposite was true. God was thoroughly humbling Saul and preparing him for what was coming. There's a sharp contrast between verse 8 here and verse 1. One moment, Saul is storming up the road, determined to capture and imprison Christians. Saul is in control. 
Saul is in charge. In verse 8, he's realized he's not in control. He's not in charge. And he's being led like a child by the hand down the road to Damascus. So we've seen Saul before the light. We've seen Saul during the light. Let's take a look at him after the light. So let's look at uh, 10 through 19, through the end here. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So now we look, we look at how the Lord spoke to Ananias in a vision. Uh, Acts 22 gives us a little bit of background about Ananias. He was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He was a leader in the community, especially among the Christians. And he very likely was a target of Saul's. Keep that in mind. You can hear it in his response. But before we get to that, Ananias answers the Lord a little bit differently than Saul does. Did you see it there? Ananias answered, here I am, Lord. You can almost hear it in the tone, although I know you can't get tone out of words. But notice the difference. Saul says, who are you? Ananias says, here I am. It's almost like, here I am, what, you want me to, what do you want me to do? Clearly, Ananias who knew who he was. He didn't ask who he was. He just said, here I am. So he knows who's calling him, and he's ready to listen. But by Ananias' response, it's evident that the news of Saul has him concerned. He knows that Saul is coming to persecute believers, and Ananias feared that Saul would do to him what he's done to others. So Jesus clarifies that he has a plan for Saul, and the plan is important. I'm going to reread something for you. I want you to listen for something a little different. In verses 14 through 16, the plan's purpose is more important than the plan. Listen to what he tells Ananias in the vision. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So that's the point of conviction, those that call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. Saul was persecuting because of his name, but now the persecutor is going to become the instrument to carry that very same name. He also says in the process you will suffer. Why will he suffer? Because of the name of Christ. The name of Jesus is why all of this is happening. 
Every bit of this is centered on the name of Jesus. The focus is to get this name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to Israel. So Ananias in verse 17 shows great faith in that same name. It says that he departs, he enters the house, he lays hands on Saul. Despite his fear, he moved forward. He moved forward through his fear because he trusted, here I am, Lord. He trusted that person that was talking to him. He's literally putting his life in danger, but he has more faith in Christ than he does in what Saul can do. Uh, It's interesting. He calls him Brother Saul. Do you see how much he believes what he was told? He was told that this same Saul that he heard about was going to carry the name of Christ forward. Ananias believes that so much he calls him Brother Saul when he meets him. That's an enormous amount of faith that God could change Saul. Some specifics about Ananias' prayer as he's laying hands on Saul. These are not small coincidental things we want to run past. You can see sovereignty. You can see providence. You can see faith. It says there that the Lord appeared to you. Ananias knew about Saul's vision. Ananias knew details of Saul's vision. Think about that sovereignty, providence, providence. And I said, he has sent me. This same God that came to you in the vision came to me in the vision and told me to come see you. He sent me so that you may regain your sight. It's interesting that Ananias recognizes that he's an instrument of God's and that Ananias is being used to help Saul. And then he says, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You now are going to become an instrument for this very same God. In the last part of 18, it says that Saul was baptized. I want you to understand the impact of this. Remember who Saul was. You guys know that baptism is an external display of an internal change. Baptism is how we tell the world what I previously believe is wrong, and this way, the way, is right. And that's what Saul did. He's now taken part in the very thing that would have marked those he came to persecute. He's now told the world, I am of the way. What a big deal it was for this Saul guy to be baptized in the name of Christ. It's it's the definition of a 180, a complete 180. So what an amazing picture, Saul's miraculous conversion. So what's that got to do with us, right? Miraculous conversion, what's that got to do with us? First, you remember who Saul was before the light. He's a pretty bad guy, and he's done some pretty bad things. And that's an understatement. He's kind of the worst guy, and he's done some of the worst things. If God can forgive this guy, he can forgive anybody. For all who fear that they may have sinned and sinned themselves out of grace, Saul is proof that even the chief among sinners can be saved. Don't believe it? Here's what Paul himself writes and relates his sins to your hope. This is 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, God had you and me in mind when he saved Paul. 
Pretty awesome thought. How sweet the designs of God in the sovereign salvation of hardened, hopeless sinners. It was for our sake that Jesus did what he did. He showed us the whole of his long suffering. We should not lose heart. We should not think that saving us is beyond his ability. We should not think that we've gone too far away. We should not think that others are beyond saving and maybe shouldn't put forth the effort. Uh, They're just too far gone. He can save us. He can save them. Suddenly, unexpectedly, by the sovereign, overflowing grace of Jesus, just like Saul. This is the hope in Jesus Christ. Secondly, ponder the conversion of Saul, Saul during the light, and the glory of God. Here's what Paul himself said about his conversion in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul said that God set him apart before he was born. Then years later, on the road to Damascus, he called me by his grace and revealed his son to me. This means that between Paul's birth, or Saul's birth, and his call on the Damascus road, he was an already chosen but not yet called instrument of God. Think about that gap there. Paul was beating and imprisoning and murdering Christians as a God-chosen, soon-to-be-made Christian missionary. There was no denying or escaping it. God had chosen him before he was born, and now on the Damascus road, he took him. God had a time for choosing him, and God had a time for calling him. Do you see where I'm going yet? God chose him before he was born and waited until now to call him. Until this point in life. Yes, that includes all those awful things that he had committed. It, commits, commit, it includes him watching Stephen be stoned. It includes him agreeing that others would be killed. It includes all the harm that he caused Christians. This was all part of the plan for the man who would write 13 New Testament books, be the dominant figure for most of the book of Acts, and the main player on the stage after Christ ascended back to heaven. This is the glory of God on display. Only God could save one such as Saul. Only God could take one such as Saul and change him and use him to carry his name. So third, how is it with you today? Are you like Saul? Does Christ have himself on display all around you and you are resisting him with all that you got? Acts 26 is, uh, and you know, is another telling of what happened on the Damascus Road. And in verse 14 there, we get to know a little bit more about what Jesus said to Saul on the road. And in here, he says to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. G-O-A-D-S. Now, you may not know what that is. A goad was typically a sharp stick or a prod used to move oxen and cattle. Right? Simply put, to kick against the goads implies someone is resisting and in the process is getting hit by a sharp object. So y'all get the picture there? Jesus knew what was going on in Saul's life up until this point on the Damascus Road. He was telling the proud Pharisee that he was hurting himself in resisting the truth and the teachings of Christ. The more he resisted, the more he suffered. 
The harder he kicked, the deeper the goad would have driven into his flesh. Does that analogy ring true to you? Are you kicking against the goads? God intended Saul's miraculous conversion for the benefit of those who would know Christ. By human standards, Saul was unsalvageable. He was the worst of the worst. Christ saved him, and Christ can save you. Like Saul, no matter where you are in life, no matter what you've done, what Christ can do with you as his child is unimaginable. Don't kick against the goads. Christ is calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for Saul. We thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you saw to draw this picture for us. It's not just a story in the Bible. It's not just something that happened. It's a picture for us. I pray that your spirit lays heavy on us. That it pushes us to see ourselves here. To see ourselves in deep need of you. And may we not kick against the goads that you have all around us. I pray that you will change us because of your son. Change us because of the light. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Thank you all for being here.